Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Liz Eswine and Quincy Moore, co-founders of the three-year-old New York or Nowhere, best known for apparel and prints featuring its brand name. The digitally native brand was birthed from a popular, covetable Instagram handle and has since entered physical retail and launched an array of product collaborations. I wanted to ask Liz and Quincy how they got their business off the ground with little to no marketing investment. I also wanted to inquire about their direction and target customer. Are streetwear fans or tourists the main target? Welcome, Liz. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And hi, Quincy. Good to see you. Likewise. Thanks for having us. We uh, we appreciate it. Of course. Well, let's just start. Founder story. What happened out of the gate? Liz, this was all you with the, with the handle. Yeah? What, what was going on back in 2011? So the digital space was an entirely different world than it is now. Um, I was a senior in college at the time. I went to NYU. And Instagram had just launched. I think it had over a million users at that point, and they had just raised a series A of $7 million. Um, I was one of the first of my friends to get an iPhone. You know, this was back in the BlackBerry days. And I tried to sign up for an account. Liz was taken. Liz NYC was taken. And I kind of just figured, well, I live in the city. And so I I input New York City and it registered and I honestly forgot about it for a few months. Um, But again, this was a very different time in the social sphere. It was the MySpace days, the live journal days, um, and the rest is kind of history. And I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go. Quincy and I have known each other for probably almost eight or nine years at this point. So that was my question. Yeah. How did you meet? We met. Uh, we're not entirely one hundred percent sure, but the the um, the story is that w- one of our dear friends, Andrew Steinthal, who founded Infatuation. I don't know if you're familiar with with Infatuation. There, the food recommendation app that um, is quite popular amongst a certain demographic. And uh, so he's he's a mutual friend, and and we think that at some point, an event somewhere, he uh, he made that introduction um, all nice. those years ago. Nice. And Quincy, meanwhile, you. Fashion, you're no stranger to the fashion industry um, or just founding a brand. Tell me about Nolita. Yeah, so Nolita was uh, kind of the predecessor to New York or Nowhere. Um, it started really as like a creative exercise for me. There were things and that I wanted to see exist in the world that, that I couldn't find in the marketplace. And so I started to design them myself. Um, and this was 2015 is when I, I left my previous job and went full time at Nolita um, and that took us to 2020, which is when Liz and I joined forces for New York or Nowhere. Um, and that IP has been trademarked since 2015. And, and it was um, sort of initially um, excavated from, from my prior work. Yes. And no Lita, K-N-O-W Lita, for those who don't know. <laughs> Correct. Yes. We had a little cool guy spin on, on the spelling there. Very cool. So 2020 came around. You saw an opportunity. What was happening? Obviously, there's a lot of pride and love for those who stayed in New York. And um, and I feel like a traitor here because, well, no, 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 no. I think I did not leave till 2021. <laughs> but still, I'm talking to you guys. Anyway, don't don't shun me. Don't, don't just, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, no ju- no yeah. judgments. 
<laughs> what was going on in 2020 that spurred the idea to kind of let's do this in a big way? Yeah. Quincy and I had connected over the years. My past life was in the agency world. Um, and we had always wanted to join forces, obviously, because of the IP that he had tucked under Nolita and the New York City Instagram account. Um, and it just made perfect sense to us. It was just never the right time. I've always been really interested in creator-led brands and products and how these brands can ultimately stand on their own two feet. However, there's also a built-in media component to it with this large megaphone where you have zero customer acquisition and you have a built-in audience um, on the media side specifically. And so Quincy and I ran into each other on the street in January of 2020 we got breakfast the next day and kind of the rest was history. I think it was very much the right timing for both of us. Um, and then COVID hit and, you know, everything followed suit with that. But that's how it happens in New York. We just ran into each other. What were you seeing with the activity prior to the New York City um Instagram handle. Um, people were just following because were you leaning into the New York City, I guess? brand where you, you weren't doing maybe outfits of the day or were you like, what was your content and what was the, um, interaction engagement? Yeah. So again, my history is in the agency world and influencer marketing. I co-founded one of the earliest influencer marketing agencies in 2015. Um, and so I've seen both sides of it, the agency world, the creator side. And I was always curious about the brand side. Um, in terms of the account, it it really is New York through rosy colored glasses in so many ways. I think, you know, there is a lot to love about this city, which is why it's such a draw for people. Um, but it's not necessarily all about me. I think that this is such an amazing city for so many people. And again, it is just about a 30 something year old girl living in the city through her eyes in so many ways. And so I think what Quincy was building in parallel to everything that was going on in 2015, 2016, and so on. It it was a perfect storm, we like to say. Yes. So Quincy, tell me, you guys came together. Um, first order of business. Um, we're going to do this. We're going to start a hoodie. Like what what were the first products and, and what other collaborators were necessary to get this off the ground? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I had a lot of the infrastructure already in place from kind of running Nolita for a few years. So there was no barrier to entry for us. I'm, you know, naturally an operator and, and a production guy. And so, um, you know, when Liz and I decided to start doing things together, we actually started with um, non-purchasable items. Everybody was inside, especially during the, be- the few first months of COVID. And then um, obviously later as well. And so we, we kind of felt like we wanted to give people something to do because everybody was so bored. So we created uh, a couple of digital downloads, which ultimately actually also um, served as kind of a, an initial customer acquisition strategy. Um, and so we created a coloring book and then we created a set of postcards uh, that were pre-stamped that we sold to people um, so that they could kind of write letters to their loved ones um, during sort of the first three or four months of COVID. Got it. So you grew this audience, fans of the brand. There was excitement. There was engagement. <laughs> um, meanwhile, is this this is not a side hustle. Were you guys doing this full time? Yeah, we. I mean, uh, yes, yes, and we still are, and more so now. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. Oh my gosh. Well, I heard it. Would, I would consider the store, which we're going to get there, an, a marketing investment. But this was all via the following. Um, 
through the Instagram account. What what else were you doing to get eyes on what you were doing with even the freebie products? Yeah, those were strategic customer acquisition um, experiments, I should say. I think, again, this was a very different time in retail, a very scary time in retail and commerce. Um, And everyone was focused on their phones and on their computers, right? No one was going out at that point in time. And so one of the customer acquisition um, levers that we had pulled was our free digital downloads. Quincy had mentioned the coloring book, but we also offered sets of free wallpapers. Um, So to go through that transaction process, we were able to acquire customer data. And it's been one of our most successful levers that we continue to pull to this day. We spend very little, if not anything at all, on, on marketing and customer acquisition. Obviously, we have the media property, but the New Yorker Nowhere Instagram account has been growing steadily over the past three years. I think it's highly shareable for people. We um, you had mentioned the store, we had built that out with intent for shareability based on our mosaic on the floor with our namesake motifs. That's um, been one of our most shared assets from the store. So thinking it's all encompassing, right? 360 from physical to digital and how it all plays together is kind of how we've thought about marketing the brand. I read in Glossy's own story on the brand that there was um, a pre-order that was kind of a way to mitigate some of the risk. Um, maybe get get off on a more profitable foot. Um, tell me about that. And also if a similar strategy informed the leap to physical retail, because like, did you want to have a certain hit a certain revenue mark before you went there? Uh, Quincy, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think, you know, with the store, it's interesting. We, we, we had the benefit of testing and learning a little bit. We had a pop-up shop in the, in uh, West Soho for about six months. Um, I guess that was 2021 to 2022. Um, we're, we're always testing and learning and, and during, the, especially the beginning of COVID, people were more willing to wait for things than they normally are. Um, I think the Amazonification of our expectations of, you know, the swiftness with which things are delivered has kind of, you know, that's not great for smaller brands because, you know, we, we don't have the infrastructure or the personnel to execute at that scale. And so during COVID, we got a little bit lucky with that and we're able to release things, you know, with four to six week timelines and people were willing to do that because really where were they going at the end of the day? Um, and so we, we did use those first few collections to generate some revenue, to, to try some new things and kind of de-risk ourselves rather than taking on, you know, bulk inventory of products that, you know, we didn't have any data on sell through on. Yeah. Have you guys taken outside investment? What's, what's your strategy there? We have not. We have not. Um, any plans too? <laughs> <laughs> Liz, you want to jump on that one? It's always a thought in the back of our mind. I think that we have grown this in the in a way that, you know, I've done some angel investing as well as Quincy has. We've have a lot of friends that have raised outside capital. There's nothing against that. We may in the future. Um, I think for us though, we want to maintain as much control as possible. And we've done this in a way, and Quincy had mentioned this about testing and learning. And I think over the course of the past three years, we've seen more evolution in the commerce world than we have probably in the last 10 years, just in terms of consumer behavior and how that shifted from being at home to now being out in the real world again. Um, And we have to kind of turn on a dime and be flexible and be nimble. So I think for us, we've really grown this in a way, keeping all of that 
and mind and moving slowly, moving strategically. Again, we have this built-in audience that we've successfully been able to tap into, and that's been hugely beneficial to us. Um, So I think, again, we're always observing, we're always learning, and we're always shifting. Yeah. How large is the company now in terms of headcount? Uh, headcount. I, we've grown by more than 150%. It's funny. We, you know, we, we were only three full time, even through the end of last year, which is kind of insane considering, you know, the revenue and also just the, the, the breadth of what we've, we've executed. Uh, we are seven full time now, plus another half dozen, um, at the retail store. What are these folks? What are their specialties? Do we have designers? Do we have, tech folks like who who are they uh we have a director of operations and then we have a few junior people that work under sarah who's our rock star we could not uh run this business without her um and then we actually just hired our first designer i've handled most of the design over the years and and we just brought somebody on who is out in portland at nike and so he started about a month ago and is really helping us kind of evolve the brand from a design and product perspective amazing Let's talk about product collaborations. You guys have secured some really top-notch collaborators, I would say. Um, Is this a strategy going forward? There's been the Knicks. There's been Magnolia Bakery. I mean, Ramoa, what? I mean, high fashion. Like, what's the range and what are the goals here? Look, I think everybody knows that collaborations are important. I think the proliferation of them also, you know, instilled a little bit of fatigue in the consumer. Um, So I think we're really thoughtful and careful with who we collaborate with. And especially like our, our biggest one and most ongoing partnership is with the Knicks. And like, it's kind of hard to get bigger than that, especially for like a New York brand. Um, so, you know, slowly but surely, I think we will continue to do smaller collaborations as, as a customer acquisition tactic. You know, like we don't, we don't have massive budgets for marketing, but it does work to align yourself with like-minded entities and kind of feed out, off of each other's audience. Um, so we'll see a lot of that. And then I think we do, you know, we have our eyes on a couple of other sports teams, local New York sports teams, and, you know, a couple of brands that we think, uh, would be beneficial to us in the long run. So we'll have to wait and see what comes of that. With the Knicks partnership, I mean, has that changed your distribution strategy? Are you selling at the games? Like what's happening there? Yeah, we are. We're, we're, um, we're selling it. So New Yorker Nowhere is entirely direct to consumer um, through our owned channels, except for at Madison Square Garden. So we've been selling at MSG for a couple of years, and at times we're the second best-selling brand of of Nick's merchandise after Nike at the Garden, which is kind of insane. Um, you know, you, you're every time I go to a game, my head is on a swivel just seeing people wearing the brand, which is really cool. Um, so I don't know that it's changed our distribution strategy. I think we, we want to continue to have as much control over how our product is merchandised and displayed in retail environments as possible, which is challenging when you're working with, with, uh, wholesale partners. Um, so time will tell, but I think for now we're pretty happy with, with where we're at. We'll be right back after this quick break. Has your customer changed, Liz? Like, I would think maybe out of the gate, it was like diehard New Yorkers. And I still think that that's probably a customer. But considering your store, I mean, what a great souvenir. Has it become like a touristy? Like people just want a piece of New York? Or who are they? Yeah, I think we sit in a very special place where we have our local consumer and our local New Yorker wearing the product. We also have visitors, um, which is obviously the tourist and we have our aspirational client, which is, you know, 
the the person that can only dream of coming to New York, but they experience it through entertainment um, and sports and so on and so forth. So we have this nice little trifecta that has been really successful for us so far. And I think tapping into the fandom, like Quincy had mentioned, where it's pride for your place in terms of sports um, is obviously our local customer as well. So we've been fortunate to have that, you know, those three buckets of clientele. And do you believe that you have like a direct competitor? I, I'm like, I heart New York. <laughs> Is that a competitor? Uh, just, I don't know, any any sort of souvenir or How would you describe it? Like, it's definitely a high-end take on on that New York takeaway. But yeah, who, who are you competing with? Uh, you know, I, I heart New York has always been a comp for us. And I think, you know, people are bringing that up more and more as we proceed. And I think it was always kind of the thesis statement. Like, is there a market for a more premium, higher end, you know, version of a I heart New York t-shirt. And I think New York or nowhere, like, you know, bottom line has proven that there absolutely is. I think that people still have a desire to celebrate their place and, and, you know, it's such a marker of identity. And so, um, in terms of other competitors, I don't know. We kind of sit in a really interesting place. You know, there are the only New Yorks of the world and, and a couple of other brands, but really what separates us is our IP. You know, nobody has this, you know, and that's ultimately the value of the company as well as the IP that we've, we've built up and, and the fact that it's attached to New York, which itself is such a massive global brand. Um, you know, we, we think we're building something pretty special here. To be mentioned alongside Milton Glazer and that iconic mark is, in honor, I think that, you know, it can go both ways where people kind of mention that it's been being sold on Canal Street and so on and so forth, but it is an iconic mark of New York. And so again, we're honored to just be associated or mentioned alongside that. Liz, you are an influencer in yourself. Tell me about your influencer strategy. Uh, is there a lot of gifting happening? I, I know that the um, the brand has landed on celebrities. Um and just like that, kind of a big deal. But yeah, what's going on in terms of getting this on the important people? Yeah. So again, I think a lot of that has come down to, and I hate to say it, serendipity. Obviously, there is a lot of strategy behind that. But most of the time when this has been seen on, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker and in Just Like That or Aaron Judge from the Yankees, most of the time it's being purchased without us even knowing. Um Obviously, we do some gifting. We we talk about this a lot internally, actually. We don't really want to, quote, spray and pray and, and gift a whole bucket of, um, of notable people or influencers. We'd rather build longstanding relationships with a lot of these people and fans. And, and so I think that, you know, it's definitely a case-by-case basis, but most of the time when it's been seen on... X, Y, and Z. It's like I had mentioned, we didn't even know that it was happening. Q, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. The extent to which people have embraced the brand has been incredible. And, you know, this, the scope of the, of the individuals, you know, it, and just like that was a complete surprise to us. Aaron Judge has been like a, a tremendous supporter of the brand simply because it speaks to his opinion, right? And his allegiance. And so like, that's very cool for us to see people, um, you know, embracing it organically. And I think, you know, obviously we, we want as many notable people to be wearing our product as, as possible, but we are still a small brand and we don't have unlimited, you know, product costs money and, and, you know, seating costs money. And so I think we are, we are cautious on, on sort of that strategy just for those reasons as well. Yes. In terms of expansion, um, 
What what new categories? What which categories are newer, and and where do you want to go in in that realm? Go ahead, Liz. Oh, I was just going to to mention knitwear is a new product category for us and has been hyper successful. Um, we launched our first knit crew neck over holiday, and it performed extremely well. So for our second collection that we launched um, in February, we had launched a knit hoodie, which is also performing extremely well. So and Q can elaborate more on the product. Yeah. Quincy, tell me about the product and the quality too. Like to get somebody to spend like $125 on a sweatshirt, like going to be disappointed if it's some generic thing, of course, but to keep them coming back. But yeah, tell me about the importance of the quality product and, and where you're going here. Yeah. I mean, quality is everything, right? And and we've spent many, many years kind of iterating and tweaking and milling our own fabrics and getting cuts right. And you know, uh, pouring over lab dips to make sure that the cream color matches our, our vision for it. And so we're, we're kind of product nerds at this point. And I think I've, I've made Liz probably, she's like probably worse than I am now at times, just, just with her specificity with how she wants things to look and feel. And, um, you know, that's hugely important to us because at the end of the day, you know, it can be a trend, right? Like a graphic on a shirt can be a trend, but if the product can stand by itself, then I think that speaks to, you know, longevity and it being sort of bigger than than just the, the one phrase or idea. So you're in home kind of gifts, apparel, accessories. Where is there a, pl- a category you're not playing in yet that you're really like discussing in a serious way right now? Not really, honestly. I think, you know, we've we've tried a, f- a few new products you know, in Q4 last year, we made a candle, we made a blanket. So I think we want to continue expanding into home goods. Um, but we do have our core sort of product assortment that that does really well for us. And I think, you know, the elevations that the consumer will see, especially over the next two years, are going to be really apparel focused, um, just kind of leveling up everything that that we're doing from from a garment perspective. Where are you producing? Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think in terms of the product and the evolution of it, um, I like to think I sit very much in the center of our target demographic. It's largely between 24 and 35, heavily skewed female. And so when I look at the product, is this something that I would ultimately want to buy? Is it up to the quality standard that I look for when I'm shopping? Um, even down to you know making adjustments on our socks. We adjusted the fit recently. Um and it's also been hyper successful. I think to that note, Quincy didn't really mention our art, um, which has been something that I haven't really seen many brands dip their toe into. Um, and this is something that we had launched in, might have been, was it part of our first collection? Uh, I think it was like the second collection. No, actually, you know, it was, it was part of the first collection, but I think we... We started doing more photography-based art, which kind of unlocked uh, the path forward for us. And that was in the fall of, of 2020. Where are you guys producing your products? I would think it's crucial to have a made in USA or made in New York stamp, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, it's such a tricky question. We produce, we produce domestically and overseas. I think, you know, if we had our, our, our wish and our dream come true, we could produce entirely in America, but it's just not possible, especially for some of the things that we're making and, and also just from a revenue and, and margin standpoint and a skill set standpoint amongst sort of, um, 
manufacturers domestically. It's just not where it needs to be in order for us to produce at the scale that, that we want to be producing at. Um, so, you know, we, as much as possible, we're bringing things back if and when we can, but more and more things are, are moving overseas. More stores in the future? Hell yeah. Hope so. That's always in the back of our mind. I think going through, we fully got renovated our store and it was an exhausting process. And immediately when it was done, we both looked at each other and we're like, when we can do the next one. So what's challenging you now? High level. I mean, we've seen the problems. There's a problem every week that brands are telling me about, whether it is the pandemic, the economy, the bank crumbling. <laughs> what What's on your mind? Um, I mean, looks to a certain extent, all of the above, but I think our biggest challenge right now is, is kind of learning that transition from being founders to being leaders. And so I think on a day-to-day basis, that's what we're focused most on and, and what Liz and I like is a constant conversation just between the two of us and how we're kind of communicating with our team and growing that team. And, you know, these are things that not, that don't always come naturally to founders, depending on what their skill set is. And, you know, we're really intent on being as good as we, you know, being the best leaders that we can and showing up for our team on a day-to-day basis, because we know that being accountable to them means that they'll be accountable to us. Do you have exact revenue goals or growth goals for 2023? We do. Yeah, I think, you know, we've we've grown between 80 and 100% year over year since Liz and I started this journey in 2020. Um, and our target is similar to, to that percentage again for this year. I think, um, you know, and that's part of when the, the raising capital conversation comes back to the forefront is, you know, how much can we really grow without access to more capital to invest in team and product and marketing. Um, but, you know, we're growing really well. We're still profitable. And, you know, those are two things that we're, you know, always proud of. More on challenges, like during the pandemic, like w- when you were starting a brand during all of this craziness, and I'm sure everybody else that has was an established brand ha- also had supply chain issues. Um, I don't know. What, what was your experience? How were you able to make a go of it? Um was it just because you were starting, you were starting and maybe you didn't have the same inventory demands out of the gate or how would you describe it? Yeah. I mean, I think I, we, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Part of it was having existing infrastructure and operations in place, which allowed us to kind of seamlessly produce things. Um, but yeah, not, not having the weight of, you know, two years prior inventory sitting in our warehouse, you know, kind of weighing us down. That was hugely beneficial. And it allowed us to again, test and learn and try some stuff out and see what people were responding to. Um, and then kind of go from there. Yes. Who owns the New York City TikTok handle is what I want to know. <laughs> Me. Do you? Right yeah. on. Now, are you, is it this, are you just as active and leveraging it in the same way? What's going on there? So we talk about this a lot internally. I think TikTok is another beast in and of itself. Um, I think our large concern is starting something and then not necessarily keeping up with it. And also the conversation of brand building and the right strategy and execution. I think something that we never want to do is to do something just because everyone else is doing something, but it's always in the back of our mind. It's a constant conversation and something we mull over quite a bit. Right on. Well, I need to visit your store. Other than it's very Instagrammable, what else what was your approach? That was that was the main the main focus, yeah? I mean, yeah, but it, it does seem a little bit shallow, doesn't it? Like, obviously, <laughs> we, you know, anytime you're doing retail, you want people to come in and take pictures of it so that other people come in and hopefully buy things. Um, but, you know, Liz and I are both design forward people. And so I think 
we wanted to build a beautiful space that was kind of the fully realized version of the brand that we both had in our head. And so we tapped into an amazing interior designer named Elizabeth Bolognino, and she kind of held our hand and, um, you know, really helped us bring our vision to life, um, which I think we've accomplished. And yes, you must come visit and let us know when you do so we can come and show you around. So I know a lot of your your styles, the sizes are sold out right now. Um, and I also know that your store often has around the corner, there, there's a line. Um, obviously, there's high demand. Tell me about that. Like that is not an inventory issue um, in terms of the sellouts. Is that a strategy? Um, you guys are just in demand? How would you describe it? I mean, I think there's there's multiple answers to this. So it it's not an inventory issue necessarily, but like at the end of the day, we're self-funded. We can only produce as much as we can produce. And, you know, as we continue to grow, one of our biggest priorities is getting farther ahead in the design and production cycle and doing so requires, you know, capital to execute that. And so, um, you know, we, we try to keep it reasonable in terms of quantities and obviously scarcity equals demand. I'm probably the hundred thousandth person to say that on a podcast, Um but you know there there is some strategy there to make sure that you know our our products do still remain covetable to people and and yeah i think liz probably has some more to add on that i think in terms of the community building aspect to it we again everything we do is listening and learning and testing and because we are so nimble and easy to pivot i think that that's such a benefit for us in terms of engaging with our customer um, for example, something that we did for the New York City Marathon, if you came into the store, again, it goes back to brand building, community building, getting people into the store, which is the biggest challenge of any retail brand. Um, for every person that ran the New York City Marathon, they had to come to the store and either show their medal or their bib number, and they were able to pick out a free hat. Um, in terms of the strategy behind that, with our inventory, we looked at which SKU had excess inventory or inventory that we that had been sitting around for a little while um, that was still selling, but you know, we were releasing a new collection for holiday coming up. Um, so again, this was a great lever to pull to get people into the store, engage with the community, kind of release a bit of excess inventory that had been at our warehouse, and to get, I mean, that is a walking billboard for people to walk around the city with their. New York City Marathon medal and a New Yorker Nowhere hat. I, it's such a moment. Um, and that was highly successful. I think the first day that we did it, we had like 1,600 people in store or something. Well, I forget the number, but it was a jam-packed day. We, Quincy and I both live um, around the corner from the store. And so we received a text message at like nine in the morning the next day saying there was already a line and we opened at 11. So it just goes back to listening and learning, like I keep saying. Um, and that was a moment that we really tapped into that was highly New York-centric, a celebration of the city, and kind of we wanted to be at the forefront of that conversation. Nice. And Quincy, scarcity equates to demand or whatever you just said. I, maybe on Streetwear Podcast, people on this podcast are not that honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is refreshing to know. Nobody says that. Um, but tell me, long-term plans, this is such... Again, this is becoming an icon, if not iconic. This is iconic. And I would think that, um, you know, there are many already acquisition opportunities um, at your door. If They'll definitely be in the future, if not. But yeah, what's the long-term plan for the company? 
Uh, thank you for saying that we're iconic. That will never get old. Um, we appreciate that. Yeah, I think you know our our, our long term hope is that you know at some point Liz and I can can sell the brand and you know the underlying IP, which you know we see has a lot of potential. Um, you know, broad scale from a licensing perspective. Um, but I don't think we're quite yet that, there yet. I think the next five years are going to be really crucial and exciting for us from opening new stores and, you know, ushering in new um, collaborations and partnerships and growing our team and really kind of like turning this into um, what I think we always hoped it could be. So the future hopefully remains bright and, you know, we're excited to see what comes next. Right on. Thanks, you guys. And maybe we're also a little too honest sometimes. I don't, you know, we don't know, but. <laughs> no, it's perfect. But you're so right. Like, if you could, you want it when you can't have it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, and it's, it's not really, I don't think that's a sustainable, you know, talking about supply and demand and like limiting your inventory. I don't know that that's sustainable for most brands. And we have moved away from that a little bit just because, you know, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the company and on the brand to continue like, that wave of hype, which very few can do. And the ecosystem around that, yeah. And the ecosystem around that. So I think, you know, we're we're a little bit more democratic. We always want to have product available in our store. And so we have our kind of core items that, you know, we produce in higher quantities just to meet the demand that we know is there. Well, look out, folks. Can't wait to see what you guys do next. Thanks so much for being here. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.